Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by the incredible Hannah Abrams and the amazing Tony Brew. Hello to you, too. And I didn't mean to rhyme there. <laughs> Hello, the stupendous Avi Cooper. Ooh, <laughs> I was reading Dr. Seuss with my son. Wow. And oh, hence the Lorax reference, too. Here we go. Pre-recording. Well, we've talked about heart valves on the show before. In episode 65, we discussed rheumatic heart disease. In episode 66, we discussed why the right-sided heart valves are more commonly affected in persons who inject drugs. For this episode, we're going to cover why we don't use immunosuppressants after bioprosthetic heart valve replacement, because you might assume that you would need to. And again, this seems odd that not only are grafts not from the self, they aren't even from the same species. Most come from either pig or cow tissue. So Tony, this is really a fascinating question. And as always, we tend to start with history. So I'm guessing that's where you're going to want to start. I think it's a good place, particularly for this topic, because I, I found the fis- the history uh, fascinating. You know, structural progressive valve disease has for centuries just been dreadful, leads to heart failure, leads to death, and there's never been a good medical treatment. And so in the 1950s and 60s, you know, valve replacement emerged as a surgical remedy, and particularly early on for calcified aortic stenosis and regurgitation. And this all began in 1952 when Charles Huffnagel, so he was the first to implant a plastic ball valve into, interestingly enough, the descending aorta of a 30-year-old woman who had experienced rheumatic fever with resulting damage to her aortic valve. And as I mentioned, the valve was plastic and it used a metal cage that housed that this like silicone ball. And Huffnickel's valve afforded this patient uh, years of additional life that her native valve just would not have been able to provide. And in the years that followed, many valves were placed in the descending aorta with the damaged valve actually remaining in place. So can you explain the descending aorta part? Why the descending aorta? Yeah, I was assuming that all valve replacements just like placed the valve at the site of the native valve, but turns out that the early valves were placed in the descending aorta. And, and the sense I get that the, the papers don't really explain it quite clearly, but the sense I get is it has something to do with surgical technique. Apparently, it's easier or is an easier procedure to just put it in a new valve in the descending aorta than to put it in the native position. But there's obviously problems with this, right? These grafts don't prevent regurgitation from areas that are more proximal to the new valve, like the arms, the head. They do prevent regurgitation from the aorta distal to the point of the new valve. And so they did um, reduce the overall strain on the left heart, but it wasn't the ideal position. And and we actually didn't see a successful position placement until 1960 when Dwight Harkin inserted the first artificial cardiac valve in the quote-unquote native aortic valve position. Okay, but these like, you know, first-generation valves, or artificial valves, they were made of like silicone and metal cages, very, very different than the bioprosthetic valves from tissue that we're going to talk about. So when did that transition happen? Yeah. I mean, as you said, these early valves were made of foreign material and they therefore required anticoagulants, just like they do now if you put in a metal valve. And this comes, of course, with the attendant bleeding risks. And it's worth noting that in the 1950s and 1960s, vitamin K antagonists used a higher INR goal than we use currently. And so that kind of augmented augmented the bleeding risk that came with these drugs and with these valves. And so this fueled an increased interest in the use of bio 
bioprosthetic valves. And unfortunately, sort of early experiments at attempting to use what are called homographs, um, they're called allografts now, taken from like human cadavers, these early experiments were pretty discouraging. But in 1956, Gordon Murray was able to successfully insert a human cadaver aortic valve into the descending aorta, again, descending aorta, of a patient with marked aortic regurgitation and a dilated cardiomyopathy. And you know, Murley had utilized the descending aorta as the implant site, but as with the sort of metal ones, the subcoronary sort of native valve insertion site was ultimately the goal. And despite a lot of early setbacks, Donald Ross finally was successfully able to place the first subcoronary aortic valve replacement with a homograft. And he did this at Guy's Hospital in London on July 24th, 1962. So it took a lot of time between the first valve and, and the, the you know first actual bioprosthetic valve in the right spot. And this patient was a 43-year-old man with a sort of rare combination of severe calcified aortic stenosis and an ostium secundum atrial septal defect. And he remained at work as a security officer for at least four years. I think it was something like four years and five months after the operation when ultimately heart failure developed when he was, oddly enough, walking up a hill. And he unfortunately died soon after. And I'll tell you, when I read these early reports, these early accounts, I was kind of reminded of how pioneers, particularly in the surgical fields, had to accept failure, repeated failure. So you know, Donald Ross, the surgical mortality that his team saw was 71% in the first 31 cases. And I think for many, my, frankly, myself included, this would have prompted an abandonment of the procedure, but not for him and his team. They instead kind of made changes in operative technique, and they saw the mortality drop to 15% in the subsequent 60 cases. I mean, 71% to 15%, it's just the persistence is dramatic. And, and you know, it's interesting, you, know, you mentioned that these early bioprosthetic valves, you use the term homograft. I think that's sort of the synonymous with what we call allografts, you know, taken from human valves and implanted into humans. But we don't use allografts or homographs very often nowadays, right? No, I, I had never even heard of this. I, I assumed everything was like a pig or a cow or a piece of metal. But I do think from the sense I get that they are still used in pediatric valve replacement, though, you know, listeners who are more in the know can let us know if that's inaccurate. Still, you know, the 1960s saw an emerging use of these homographs, allografts, and the success of these valves and their advantages over plastic and metal valves, it kind of led to the realization that we had a limited availability and this is was going to preclude their wider use. I mean, as with any human organ or tissue transplant, dema demand almost always outstrips supply. And so these issues led surgeons and researchers to explore the use of heterographs also known as xenografts. So in the episode, we'll sort of use heterograph, xenograph interchangeably. And this is when non-human valve tissue is used. And in 1965, Duran and Gunning demonstrated that freeze-dried pig aortic valves could be transplanted into the descending aorta of dogs. And just a few months later, on September 23rd, 1965, a team of French surgeons replaced the calcified aortic valve of a 48-year-old woman with a 2.7-centimeter pig valve. And it's like now it seems commonplace, but the, yeah, at the time, I mean, that, that must have been crazy. And the report of this case and four others was published in December 1965. It also makes me wonder so much about the sizing. Did they have multiple pigs and did they pick the one <laughs> by 1960s Echo that had the best sizing? Did they guess? 
I mean, coming back for a second, pigs. Where did even that choice to go with pigs come from? I don't normally think of it as a source of a lot of uh, transplants. No, I think it's a, a great question, and it's and it's one that I realized I didn't have until I started reading about this. And um, you know, pig valves, and then ultimately later, you know, cow tissue as well it was chosen for a number of reasons. And you know, when you compare it to primates, which you'd think, oh, that's going to be the most close homology to a human heart or in a human heart valve would be a primate. There's a couple of reasons pig valves were chosen. One is that there's just a lot more of them, frankly. But it's also, if you take a picture or look at a picture of a pig heart and a human heart, they're remarkably similar in size and shape. And so it just like worked out nicely that they could be used in humans. To recap, we started in 1952, valves being placed in the descending aorta that are made of foreign materials like metal and plastic. And then by 1965, we've progressed to xenografts uh, from pigs placed in the native aortic valve position, which is really an amazing progression over just 13 years. But as this transition happened to xenografts, were immunosuppressants used at all in those early days? I mean, and that's you know getting us to to the question that kind of prompted us um, to talk about xenografts in general. And you know, it's interesting, and I didn't realize this. You know, these initial homographs that came from human cadavers, um, they were considered viable um, because they had been procured from cadavers. But you know, aseptic technique was used, and they were transplanted pretty soon after uh, the harvesting. And so, this raised the possibility of an immune rejection to this foreign valve tissue, and that actually prompted Donald Ross and his team to use cortisone as an immunosuppressant in in the early surgeries. And, you know, the time and logistical restrictions that were raised by harvesting and preserving these homographs actually led to the development of other storage methods. And and Ross's team began to use a freeze-drying method. And they observed that this process left the valves, quote, demonstrably free from cell nuclei. They are, in effect, inert frameworks of elastic and collagen fibers, end quote. And so after the initial studies um, showed no evidence of immune rejection, but high rates of fungal infection, they actually abandoned the use of steroids. And Davies, um, who is sort of a co-author in research with Ross, uh, he and Ross wrote in 1965 that, quote, unlike kidney or lung transplants, this procedure does not depend for success on tissue compatibility or the suppression of immune reactions, end quote. And so, you know, in 1968, they had a follow-up study of 91 cases, and um, they noted no evidence of immune rejection to these grafts, despite the fact that they had abandoned the use of cortisone. So, you know, to answer your question, Avi, yes, immunosuppressants were used in some of these early homograft surgeries, but ha- they haven't been used in since, like, you know, the first few cases. And best I can tell, they've never been used for the xenografts. I mean, you know... Now to us today, it seems it seems like it makes so much sense. Like, of course, these are inert substances, whatever freeze drying that they do that I've never thought about before must mean that, that there's no immune response to them or there's a reduced ability to promote an immune response. But as you describe it, it totally makes sense. In an era where they're developing all these other plants, transplants, of course, and they're putting a xenograft in someone, of course, they would think about immunosuppressing them. Right, right. It's sort of interesting. Yeah, it seems like maybe if the graft is physiologically inert, then it won't promote the same kind of immune response. 
Yeah, and that is this idea of a blunted immune response. That's one of the main theories, particularly for the the homographs. Yeah, but a lot of other possibilities have been offered. And so, you know, a couple of the other ones that you'll see actually relate to blood flow and the ability of the immune system to actually access the valve tissue. So one is the idea that the valves don't have the vascularity necessary to permit immune cell invasion. Right. So that would be, you know, from the vessels feeding the valve itself. Right. There just aren't enough of those vessels to feed the valve. And so the immune system can't get there. And another relates to the idea that the blood flow across the valve is too rapid to allow immune cell invasion from kind of like the systemic circulation. So the idea is like the immune cells just can't get in from either side. And these are interesting, but I, I don't find them nearly as compelling as the idea of immune privilege, which you'll often see written about here. So, you know, immune privilege, I, I've uh, I've heard that concept before. I, you know, it's it's like an evolutionary adaptation that sort of protects vital tissues within our bodies from immune destruction. That basically like if the immune system had access to such tissues, like we as a human species wouldn't be able to survive with that, you know, if that was the case, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, cl- the classic examples that you hear about are the eyes, the testes, and the placenta. There are others, but those are like kind of the three of the main ones. And the idea is, as you said, Avi, if we quote unquote allowed our immune system to destroy these areas, our species would just like die off, right? And the idea that valves may be a site of immune privilege was first offered actually way back in 1967 by uh, Hiroshi Mori and uh, his co-authors. And in particular, they noted that the aortic valve position appeared uniquely protected, but they don't really go into details to like why or like evolutionarily what's what's different about the aortic valve compared to like the pulmonic or mitral valve. And this is supported by more recent observations. So for example, Mitchell et al. examined homographed hearts after death or retransplantation. And even in those who had died from rejection, right? So the hearts had been rejected, the whole hearts, the aortic valves were spared without any apparent immunologic injury. And so again, this suggests maybe there's something about the valves that doesn't allow the immune system to like destroy it, or at least not as well. That is pretty cool. Also, did you guys know that there that the cheeks of hamsters are an immunologically privileged site? No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I learned oh, that in college so immunology cool. and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Why wouldn't they be? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, it's so That's honestly. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know why. I don't I don't have a good understanding of the why behind that, but that would be also a great uh thing for us to look up, which I'm going to do after this episode. But what a I mean, what a fascinating and it totally makes sense why we might evolutionarily want to protect our aortic valves. But we've also talked about this is not just rejecting another human being's heart. This is rejecting a pig or cow tissue. So there's got to be something else there because normally we would reject you know, a, a pig or a cow tissue, right? Yeah, I mean, xenotransplantation raises a whole host of other immune issues. And, you know, the history of xenotransplantation is riddled with failures, particularly when immunosuppression is not used. And, you know, the primary basis of the, the hyperacute rejection to xenografts is the immune response to galactose alpha 13 galactose, also known as alpha gal. And we've talked about alpha-gal before on the podcast and its relation to xenotransplantation back in episode 70 when we covered meat allergies. Uh, and I think specifically, we also talked about cardiac xenotransplantation from pigs. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the episode, we discussed that 
most non-primates contain alpha-gal um, essentially all over their tissues, um, but that humans lack this carbohydrate. And as a result, alpha-gal is perceived by our immune systems as a foreign antigen and then react to that. So with this in mind, why wouldn't a reaction to alpha-gal lead to hyperacute rejection of you know valve xenografts that are coming from these animals? I mean, I think that's the key question, right? So if you think back, right from the, the first xenograft surgeries in the 1960s, immunosuppressants um, weren't used. But we didn't see hyperacute rejection even back then. Now, I'll say there were high rates of valve failure. They just weren't hyperacute failure. So with these early surgeries, again, in the 1960s, at one year, just 45 to 50% of the valves were well-functioning. And explanted valves showed features indicating an immune response to the xenograft tissue. So it's not as though there wasn't an immune response, but it wasn't happening in the, the again, hyperacute way that you typically see when you're talking about uh, alpha-gal. Yeah. But 50% failure rate or 50% success rate at one year. <laughs> yeah, it's all about how you full, look at it. Right? Yeah. It's a real oncology mindset. Um, but that is, we would not be happy with that number depending on the circumstance. So how did the researchers and surgeons respond? I mean, clearly that's not the failure rate now. Right. You know, and this, one of the solutions, and I think the solution that has persisted uh, was offered by uh, glutaraldehyde. So, so this is an organic compound that generates crosslinks with amino groups of lysine and other amino acids. And this results in what's called a fixation of the tissue. And sort of this fixation, this cross-linking, reduces the antigenicity of the valves. And after glutaraldehyde was added to the conditioning regimen before transplantation, the rates of valve success at one year increased to 82%. So again, before they were about 50%, you add glutaraldehyde to the conditioning regimen, increases to 82%. And so Glutaraldehyde is one of the key reasons we don't need to use immunosuppression after uh, xenograft insertion. It just it helps to kind of mask some of the antigens by cross-linking them. Okay, so glutaraldehyde sort of like hides these foreign antigens from the immune system by cross-linking right. amino acids. But what about you know? But alpha gal is a carbohydrate, so I didn't get the sense from you that glutaraldehyde can cross-link. Alpha gal, and therefore it sh shouldn't be masking that particular antigen, right? That's right. I mean, I, I, I said, oh, alpha gal is key for hypercute rejection. And then I talked about glutaraldehyde. But just as you said, Avi, like glutaraldehyde does not affect alpha gal because alpha gal is a carbohydrate. And so that's like kind of a little bit of a, a, a mystery here. And, you know, what's interesting is that there is actually evidence of an immune response to alpha gal after valve replacement. So this was suggested by a 2011 study by Block et al., and it showed a pretty sizable anti-alpha-gal antibody response even after glutaraldehyde treatment was done. So this indicates and supports this idea that glutaraldehyde treatment doesn't eliminate the immune response to that antigen. We wouldn't expect it to because glutaraldehyde is carbohydrate and glutaraldehyde handles the amino acid groups. But this kind of means we have discordant findings that I, I have to try to explain. So the first is that glutaraldehyde doesn't eliminate the main antigen in acute rejection, the alpha-gal. But the second is that patients receiving glutaraldehyde-fixed bioprosthetic xenografts don't experience hyperacute rejection. So we got to reconcile these two contradictory explanations, or uh, sorry, observations. 
My money's on something special about valves being evolutionarily protected in pigs to facilitate xenografts to enable <laughs> symbiosis with humans. Yeah, the, the, exactly. Evolution knew that we were going to be harvesting pig valves and putting them into humans. So it it, yeah. it, it did this for us. Cheat code. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's probably not related to immune privilege or if it is, it's, it's, you know, in a different way, but it does have to do with the amount of alpha gal in different tissues. And so a clue to this idea of sort of different amounts of this carbohydrate comes from a 2000 study by Chen et al. So what they did is they transplanted whole pig hearts into baboons. And these hearts were acutely rejected within just hours after uh, implantation, as you'd expect, right? Because they didn't provide immunosuppression, right? They took a pig heart, put it into a baboon, xenograft, no immunosuppression, within hours, rejection occurred. Went baboon. Yes, exactly. So they looked at the hearts and there was a rejection all over the place. But when they looked at the aortic and pulmonic valves, they were entirely spared. There was no immune response to the uh, to those valves. And this in a follow-up study showed that although the pig valve endothelium does express alpha-gal, it does so much less intensely than the aortic valve, the aorta, or the veins that are sort of surrounding these tissues. And I think the idea is that less alpha-gal expression in the valves means a lesser immune reaction. Hmm. Do we know why uh, the valves would express less alpha-gal? I don't know. Um, I, others may, and I, but I didn't see any clear hypotheses. I mean, Avi, I know you've done some reading on alpha-gal. you have any hypotheses on this? I mean – you know, alpha-gal was really um, found – it sort of acts like a carbohydrate cap on mainly lipids and glycoproteins. So it would sort of stand to reason that perhaps the, you know, valve tissue, you know, which is more just sort of fibrous, just doesn't have as much of those things and therefore right. it doesn't have as much alpha-gal. That would be my guess, but that would be uh, not based on uh, any any empiric data. In, you know the idea that the, that valve tissue is is different than the surrounding um, you know myocardium that I would say is not surprising. Okay, so are you saying that alpha gal actually doesn't really matter all that much at all when it comes to this whole valve story? No, I, I think it actually does matter, and and some have suggested that it's a factor in the slower degeneration that we see you know now in 2023 and that we even saw way back in the 1960s with the first uh, xenografts and it is also the case that the bioprosthetic xenografts elicit an immune response and it's probably maybe a, like a more of a slow burn reaction that contributes to de degeneration and you know in response to this some have even begun to wonder whether or not we ought to use some form of immunosuppression to try to preserve valve function cuz remember if you want to transplant or replace a valve and you want it to last a long time you choose a metal valve the bioprosthetic valves don't last and it's because of degeneration some of that degeneration probably has to do with glutaraldehyde but some of it may have to do with a slow burn reaction to alpha gal so it sounds like if these xenograft valves had more alpha-gal, we would expect to see the hyperacute rejection, which we don't see. Um, but I they have right. some alpha-gal, and therefore we do see sort of a more chronic, slow-burn immune response to them, which perhaps contributes to sort of more long-term degeneration of the valve over the course of, of years. Is that a fair 
summary? That's my interpretation of things, yeah. Okay. So thinking back to our alpha gal, you know, episode where we talked about how the scary thought that a tick bite could lead to a severe meat allergy and anaphylaxis. You know, some people with alpha gal syndrome are walking around and end up needing bioprosthetic valve replacements. So is there any evidence that, you know, someone who is sensitized to alpha gal is going to have issues with a bioprosthetic valve? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um, There are emerging case reports showing that those who have an alpha-gal allergy experience accelerated valve degeneration. So I'll I'll offer one example, and this is a patient who underwent bioprosthetic aortic valve replacement in 2004, and the valve worked great for seven years, all the way through 2011. And then in 2012, he developed urticaria six hours after eating steak, followed by similar episodes. He had a meat allergy. And in 2014, so two years after that, he developed shortness of breath and an echo showed severe aortic insufficiency and prosthetic valve degeneration. And labs, you know, IgE and all these other tests, they were consistent with alpha-gal allergy. And they, when they replaced the degenerated valve, they found no evidence of endocarditis, but the prosthetic leaflets were mostly destroyed. And so, you know, it doesn't prove that the meat allergy uh, led to accelerated valve failure, but it's, and so, you know, it, it isn't just about intolerance to meat. It could have broader implications. Wow. Alpha gal is everywhere. I, you know, three years ago, I had never heard of that carbohydrate, but apparently it's important. Wear that bug spray, folks. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Do those tick checks. I know. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, what a, I mean, what a, such an interesting observation that feels like it's going to become more and more relevant over time. Wow. This had so many pearls. Tony, do you want to give us any take home points that you have? Uh, I'd love to. So, uh, you know, the first thing is that heart valves, particularly aortic valve, may be areas of, you know, quote unquote immune privilege. So that, that's one. Two, you know, before the placement of uh, bioprosthetic xenografts, glutaraldehyde is used to sort of fix antigens, and this reduces the immunogenicity of the valve grafts. So three, alpha-gal is not affected by this fixer, this glutaraldehyde, and therefore alpha-gal does contribute to valve degeneration. But four, because valve tissue may have less alpha-gal, there's probably a lesser propensity to the hyperacute rejection that we see in other xenograft tissues. And I guess Avi also said maybe five, uh, wear bug spray. And sunscreen, just for good And sunscreen, measure. yeah, definitely. Yeah, just just guys. And um, seat belts, right. and seat belts. Oh, seat <laughs> yeah. belts, great one. All right, we're up to seven. <laughs> All right, so before we convey any life lessons to you, that will wrap up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. You can also, this is new today, subscribe to our Substack at thecuriousclinicians.substack.com. That's thecuriousclinicians.substack.com. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. And for more information, you can visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. As always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. 